You guys, we'll do that again. And actually, we're actually talking about, um, I was talking with Justin and some of the others about doing another adult trip down there, um, maybe after the first of the year, where we too go and uh, can get the agape bags, uh, which are, like Molly was sharing, was full of just different things that are able to help people who are homeless or living on the streets. And it's really just a vehicle to be able to pray with people, uh, to tell them about Jesus and show them God's love. And um, there's a great opportunity. And so um, if you can start praying about maybe if God would have you go, we'd love to take a group down there of about uh, 15 people so uh, or more. And um, try to do that sometime after the first of the year. Uh, we'll, we'll get it planned. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. If you'll open up your Bible there with me to Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> well, if you've been coming here for a while, and i looking out into the crowd, and uh, most of you have been coming here for a while, um, and as a result of that, you've probably heard me share little bits and pieces about my life um, before I became a follower of God, before I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and for the salvation, the eternal salvation that he offers. And as most of you know, um, my life before Jesus was one that was filled um, with the abuse of, of drugs and alcohol. And um, I began um, drinking and doing drugs when I was 12 years old. And uh, that lasted for 10 years of my life, approximately. And, and for those 10 years of my life, I committed myself to the things and to the type of life that a drug addict lives. And I won't go into all the details. That's not really the point this morning. But um, needless to say, those 10 years were some pretty dark and desperate and sad times. And the choices that I made while living that kind of life, the best way to describe it is, is that it robbed me of everything. It robbed me of everything. But even though I went through some pretty low places and some pretty low times, the truth is, is God was right there for me when I finally humbled myself and trusted Him with my life. And ever since that day, my life has changed because I was changed. God changed me. And God's continuing to change me. He's, kind of, he's continuing to work on me. And, and my life has changed because I was changed. And in that moment, when I accepted Jesus as Lord of my life, I was given a true hope. I was given an inner joy and a peace that is truly far above any of the circumstances in this life that I face. But I say all of that because I want to be completely honest with you. Completely honest in the sense that um, my life as a Christian, just like yours, still has problems, right? We still have problems. Even though life is better, we have hope and joy and peace, a true hope, a true joy, and a true peace that surpasses the understanding of this situation. And, 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 and I wouldn't trade my life with Jesus for anything. I wouldn't. But this Christian life that we live, it has problems. It has challenges. And specifically, I point that out because it has problems and it has challenges, if we're all completely honest, problems and challenges that cause us or cause me, I'll speak for myself, cause me to be afraid at times, cause me to feel as if a darkness has fallen upon me, discouragement sets in, 
Anxiety takes over. But you know what? The more I study the Bible, I realize that these low places and the fear and the anxiety and the discouragement that they can produce, they're really something that every person of God has experienced. Every person of God. Great men of God, even in the Bible, men like King Solomon and King David, they write about these things. They share these things honestly. Not just the kings, but some of the prophets, the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, also great men of God who experienced problems in times of fear and anxiety and discouragement and depression. And, 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 and even the apostles, like the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. Apostle Paul writes one time, says, we were greatly afraid. We were perplexed. Death was on every side. And he speaks, he gives us that insight into his heart, into those times. You know, and an even more modern day people of faith that, that we can connect at on a different level even, men like Charles Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis both express going through times of darkness. Times when they would say that God felt far away and their feelings of anxiety, fear, and discouragement were close. It was Thomas Goodwin. He's a 17th century um, Puritan uh, preacher and theologian. He wrote over 50 books. He, wrote, he, he once wrote in one of, his, one of his manuscripts, he wrote, One who truly fears God and is obedient to Him may be in a condition of darkness and have no light, and he may walk many days and years in that condition. I'm going to read that again. He said, one who truly fears God, because this seems contrary to us in that um, if we're followers of Christ and we have this true joy, this true peace, and this, this, this true hope that surpasses the understanding of, of the circumstances of our situation, then, then, then we should never fear. We should never have times of darkness. We should never be discouraged. But this, this 17th century period, and he writes and he says this again, he says, one who truly fears God and is obedient to Him, so even if you fear God and you're in obedience to Him, he says, you may be in a condition of darkness and have no light, and He may walk many days and years in that condition. Did you guys, anyone seen the, the movie called The Letters about Mother Teresa after she passed? And the letters that they discovered, her, her own personal notes and letters about her experience. And she was a wonderful woman of God who served the Lord all of her life faithfully. And in those letters, the, 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 it was released, it was made known that, that for the majority of her life there in Calcutta serving, that she was alone. She felt alone. She felt alone. This woman who was so close to God, so near to God, such a servant of God, one who feared God, one who was obedient to him, she walked, it says, with the feelings of loneliness for the majority of that time. Those were her own words. And writing about these very same kind of things, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 10 said, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? And he goes on to say also, And who walks in darkness and has no light? Again, that kind of seems contrary to us that those three things would be put together. Who, Isaiah says, among you fears the Lord. He's, he's speaking to the crowd, calling, rhetorically calling out. And he says, who obeys the voice of the Lord and who walks in darkness and has no light? 
He says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Another translation reads and says it like, says it like this, same passage, Isaiah 50, verse 10. He says, all of you that fear the Lord and obey the words of his servant, the path you may walk, or the, the path you walk may be dark indeed, but trust in the Lord and rely on your guard, on your God. All of you that fear the Lord and obey the words of his servant, the path you may that you walk may be dark indeed, but trust in the Lord and rely on your guard, on your God. And this, this was the testimony of the great missionary, J. Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the, the China Inland Mission, and, and he suffered may, much persecution, specifically during the Boxer Rebellion there in China. And speaking about that dark time, that season of his life, he said to a friend, he said, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot even pray. He says, but I can trust. But I can trust. I cannot think. I cannot read. I cannot even pray. But I can trust. So filled with darkness. So full of fear. During that time of his life, he honestly put that out there and said, in spite of all the things, he says, but I can trust. And as we continue on through the book of Genesis and read here chapter 15, I point all these things out because we see again Abram, this great man of faith, this, this mighty warrior of God that we read about in last week's study through chapter 14. We read about him and we see that he also went through dark times, times when the uncertainties of life caused him to doubt and to be filled with fear. And in chapter 1, chapter 15, verse 1, we read, and it says, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said to the Lord God, What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Elzer of Damascus, Eliza of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall be your this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And verse six says, And he believed. In the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to the Lord, I am, or then, the, then he said, then he, the Lord, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer, a three year old female goat, and a three year old ram a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them into two pieces down the middle and placed them each on each piece opposite of other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. 
And also, the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Now, as far as you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there was an appearance or there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I give given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphium, the, Am- the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Father, again, I ask, Lord, that you would now make your presence known to us through your word. God, that you would be the one to speak and teach and make known truth. God, we desire to hear from you. We need to hear from you. God, without knowing your word, your will, and your ways, we're lost. God, I know there are many people in our fellowship who are going through hard times. Perhaps they too feel like they're in a place, Lord, where they can't even think. They can't read, they can't pray, but they can trust. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are in that spot that they would find encouragement, Lord, through the example of Abram and the words that you spoke to him and how you ministered to him and how you desire to minister in a loving way and a gracious way to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, look back to verse 1. And, and as you're doing so, I just want to point out that in the previous chapter, the focus was on Abraham's actions. They were on his actions, the things he did as he fought against the armies of these four kings who, who had taken Lot, his nephew, captive. But the focus now shifts here in this chapter. The, 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 the focus has shifted from Abraham's actions now to his emotions, to his feelings. In light of this, we're reminded of the fact that even people of great faith have feelings and the way that we feel must not be um, discredited, dismissed, or ignored. And I, I I point this out because I've met Christians who are prone to focus on the thoughts of our minds, thinking, you know, we've got to take our thoughts captive, and, and, and they focus on, 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 you know, even like it says in Philippians chapter 4, meditate on what is good and true and noble and praiseworthy and of a good report. And these things are, these things are true. They're truths. But I've met Christians who focus on, on, on the thoughts of the mind and then of the act of our will. And in doing so, they minimize these emotions that we all experience. And they do so because they think somehow that it's an ungodly thing to demonstrate, it's an ungodly thing, our feelings that can demonstrate a lack of faith if we acknowledge or express feelings like fear or anxiety or discouragement. And not only is this untrue, it's also a dangerous thing to dismiss or ignore the feelings that we have as it can lead us to an unbalanced life spiritually. The fact of the matter is, the Bible makes it clear that we're created in the image of God, right? And this includes our emotions. Our God is an emotional God who loves us and cares for us and grieves, it says. He's an emotional God. So while it's unwise to trust our emotions and bypass our minds, okay, you get that? So even though it may be unwise or is unwise to trust in our emotions and allow our emotions to bypass our minds or to let our emotions to get out of control, it's also unwise to deny, to suppress, 
our emotions and become some kind of religious robot that doesn't feel anything. Remember, when we look to the, the Psalms, what are great expressions of emotions, when we look to the Psalms, we see that those who wrote them, they often told God exactly how they felt about Him. God, you've, you, you've, you've forsaken me. You've abandoned me. You feel far away. Things like this, the psalmist wrote all the time, regularly about the Lord, telling them how they felt about Him. Not only about how they felt about God, but how they felt about themselves and how they felt about them circumstances. And this is really a, a great example for us to follow, especially in light of the fact, guys, that God already knows. It's no surprise to Him. It's like as parents, when your kids come up to you and they tell you something and you're like, yeah, I know. And they're like, oh, you know, it's, it's like God knows. And we, we're so surprised when we think that, that we're, if we're not being honest with the, how we feel with ourselves or with God or with others as a church body that somehow God doesn't know. But he does. And this is exactly the first thing that we see in verse one, where it tells us that God came to Abram and he spoke to him and he said what? Don't be afraid. Did, now, did Abram, anywhere in the text, come and go, God, I'm afraid? No. God came to Abram and said, don't be afraid. And even though we're not told why Abram was afraid, this verse, it's really directing our attention back to the events that had just, take place, just taken place in chapter 14, where it says, after these things, okay? That's there intentionally. So we follow the context. After what things? After these things, it says the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying, don't be afraid. And like I already mentioned, Abram had just pursued in chapter 14 intact four kings who had taken his nephew Lot captive. And in doing so, Abram had received this miraculous victory over these armies who were greater than him and saved his nephew Lot. However, when God came to Abram, he had to tell him not to be afraid. And therefore, the logical thing for us to conclude is that Abram must have been afraid. And this might seem like an odd thing, considering Abram had just won this mighty battle. He was given this great victory. He was the mighty warrior, right? But perhaps his emotions were a delayed reaction to what he had just gone through. You ever experienced that? I say this because it's not uncommon when we're facing a great time of danger or really a time of difficulty to experience the emotions and feelings once the thing that we've gone through has passed, when the reality of what has just has happened settles in our minds, where you go, wow, did that really just happen? I could picture that. You know, Abram, he responds, he gets his 300 men, and what does he do? He gathers them up, and he just goes. And we know that it was 140 miles, well, it was 100 miles to initially catch them, and another 40 miles he fought after he, 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 he was pursuing them. So, I mean, there was no time rest. There was no time to think about it. He reacted. He was led by God. He was prepared. He went. And then when he got back, perhaps it was like, that was the king of Babylon. That guy was that guy was pretty powerful. I can't believe what just happened. And then all of a sudden, what? The reality of the situation sets in, and perhaps that is why he had fear. On the other hand, 
What we know is we know that these armies that Abraham were able to prevail against in this time, that they were greater, far greater in number than Abram. Far greater in number and far greater in resources. And even though Abram had won the battle, it's likely that he was now worried about these four kings returning with their reinforcements and attacking Abram's camp. And the fact that these kings had just defeated defeated five other kings who had previously rebelled against them who were in their servitude was evidence that these four kings led by Ketelamar were not kindly or didn't take defeat lightly. In addition to this, we know that when the battle was over, there was another king that came to Abram at the end of the chapter. Remember the king of Sodom? And he sought to reward Abram. This was a neighbor, so to speak. He sought to reward Abram for recovering the possessions and the people that had been taken from him by these other kings. Yet what did Abram do? (laughs) I ain't taking nothing from you, dude. No way am I aligning myself with you. He refused the reward. That could have been an insult, right? He refused the reward and rather than align himself with this wicked and evil king of Sodom, he, in this guy's face, declared his allegiance to God and stood with Melchizedek, we're told, king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. And I point this out because when we stand up, guys, when we stand up for what is good and stand against evil, it can be frightening, right? As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the reasons why our country is in such a poor state as it is, because there are a lot of us as believers who are frightened and are unwilling to stand up. We're unwilling to say the, speak the truth in love. But nevertheless, we're called to. And, and in this situation, whatever the, reason, whatever the reason might have been for Abram's fear, it's clear as we follow the context near, as you move through this with me now into verse 2 down through verse 6, what we see is we see that it's clear Whatever the fear was, it's clear from the verses that follow that Abram was concerned for his life. And what would happen if he were to be killed? But more importantly, we see that God came to Abram when he was afraid, and he assured him of the promises which he had already spoken to Abram to to bless him, to provide for him, and to protect him. And in the same way, God is faithful to come to us. Guys, in this moment that you may be in right now, understand that God's come to you. He's come to you. He comes to us. And He's faithful to come to us and to speak assurances to us that drive out these fears. To drive them out from our heart and to replace it with God's love and God's power. Now, that may not mean your circumstances will change, but it means that God will meet you in the midst of them. He's there in the boat when the storm's raging. And in light of this, we need to see that God's remedy, if you want the remedy, if you want the antidote for for fear, we see that God's remedy, God's antidote for Abraham's fear was to remind him of who he was saying, look, at the end of verse 1, he said, I am. How many times is that statement given throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? I am. And he goes on and he defines that. Even even Jesus, there's these great seven I am statements that Jesus makes as the Son of God, deity, God in the flesh. But in the Old Testament, we know that the very first time that God even revealed himself to Moses, he simply said what? I am. 
And this is the remedy because as God, as God speaks this at the end of verse 4, he says, I am your shield and your great reward. And in doing so, what God was doing is he was directing Abram's eyes off of himself, because Abram had started to begin to look at himself, not only his circumstances, but himself, and, and he was putting his eyes onto him, onto God. He says, I am. I am. I've heard it said this. I've heard it said, listen, that God's I am is perfectly adequate for man's I am not. I love that. I need to tattoo that on my forehead. You know, so every time I get up and look in the mirror or I'm feeling fearful, I'm just like, oh yeah. God's I am is perfectly adequate for my I am not. And, and this points out that our life, guys, is only as big as our faith. Your life, my life, is only as big as our faith, and our faith is only as big as our God. But how big is our God? So if we spend all of our time looking at ourselves, you know what's going to happen? We're going to get discouraged. But if we look to God by faith, there will always be encouragement. And so in verse 2, Abraham says, it says, But Abram said to the Lord God, What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is, is Lizer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you've given me no offspring. <laughs> you ever talk to God like that? It's like, You promised. Look, I'm afraid I could be killed here and you've given me no offspring, no heir. What does it matter if you made all these promises to me because there's no one of my own to receive it like you said was going to happen, God? Look, you've given me no offspring and indeed the one born in my house is not even mine. He's born in my house. He's my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir but the one who will come from your own body shall be heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. I think God's a little sarcastic there with Abram. Come on out, look up. You can count them if you want, if you can. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then verse 6. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Back in chapter 13, verse 6, is when we first read about these promises. God promised Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and that they, his descendants, would bring a blessing to the whole world. Guys, if you follow the chronological record of this and you study it through, what you realize is since that time when God first made the promise, 10 years had passed. Abram first met God when he was 75, now Abram's about 85. Ten years had passed since God first spoke those promises to Abram and Sarai. And they were still without a child, without an heir from his own body. In this current state of fear, okay, put it all together, and in this current state of fear, like it is often for us, it seemed to Abram as if God was doing nothing. And Abram wondered, what had happened to the promises that God had spoken? After all, he was getting no younger, and time was appearing to be running out. In fact, where we read here in verse 2 that Eliza of Damascus had been made the heir, it reveals that Abram had doubted the promise of God of an heir now for a while. 
He had been doubting for a while. And in doing so, Abram had taken his eyes off God, who is the great I Am, and put them on himself, and he was seeing the I Am Not. But God did an awesome thing in verse 5. I love it. God did an awesome thing in verse 5. And he, the thing that Abraham, God did, he also does for us he, 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 by calling Abram to look upward. He says, look upward to the heaven. Look upward to the heavens and see what I can do. See what I can do. See what your God can do. And in doing so, God assured Abram that an heir would come from his own body and that the descendants from that heir would be as numerous as the stars. And the bottom line is, is God was telling Abram to stop looking to his own capabilities and even to the, own, to the capabilities of, of, of others around him to bring forth his promises, God's promises, and return to looking to him. In other words, God is saying, listen, Abram, I don't need your help. Eliza, Damascus, not your heir. That's not, that's not your error. I've not appointed him. I didn't say that's what was going to happen. Why are you taking things into your own hands? And guys, when we look at Abram's life, we know he kind of has a problem with that, doesn't he? Well, so do I. When it comes to waiting and trusting in God and fear sets in, it's like, okay, God, let me just help you out here. Remember last week as we were going through chapter 14, I said that this life of faith that we're called to, that we've been called to, is really like a school of faith, Right? And we, like Abram, are students who are continually learning what it means to live by faith, not by sight. That's when you see the circumstances and your, your incapabilities and all these things. We're not to live by sight, we're to live by faith, but we're in the school and we're constantly learning these lessons. And here we see that one of the basic lessons in this school of faith is that God's will must be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. God's will, school of faith, a lesson. God's will must be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. You see, God did not expect Abram and Sarai to figure it out. He didn't expect them to figure out how to have an heir. All he asked them was to be available so that he could accomplish his purposes in and through them. Are you available? Because God wants to do the same thing in our lives today. To accomplish his will in and through our lives. All he is asking for is your availability. And in the same way, all these things are true for us. But what Abram and Sarah didn't realize was that God was waiting for them. God was waiting for them. Meaning God was waiting for them to grow older. Past the age where they could even have a hope or a chance of naturally having a child. And why would God do this? And God did this so that he alone would receive the glory. So that he alone would receive the honor so that there would be no doubts that what, happened, what had happened was a fulfillment of God doing the work and making his promises true. In light of this, we have to see, we need to see that it's good to share our concerns with God. Because if you don't, if we don't, then we're not going to God, we're turning to ourselves. If we're not being honest about how we feel or, or what we're going through, then what happens is we're not going to God, we're going to someone or something else. And it's good to share our concerns with God, even if what we say may seem to reveal an unbelief or impatience that's in our heart. Guys, remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, remember we have a God who is, is emotional. He cares. He's full of emotion. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-7, through 7, speaking about these things and connecting it, the Apostle Peter writes, and he says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you, He says. He cares for you. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. And the point is, is even when we may be living in the place of doubt, even when we may be living, not in the, the place of faith, but even when we may be living in the place of doubt and overcome by our feelings, what we see here is that God who loves us won't turn a deaf ear to our questions, and He is never unconcerned about our feelings. Notice that Abram was sharing these things with God, that as he was doing it, that God did not rebuke him. And maybe if you're like me, you're reading through this and you're just kind of waiting for it. Get him, God. Tell him. See, God didn't do that. He didn't rebuke him. But what we read here over and over again is that God gave him assurances, the assurances that he needed in this time of doubting, in this time of fear, in this time of darkness. In other words, guys, what this really boils down to, if we want to kind of put some religious words on it, I hate doing that, but it really defines it for us. In other words, God mercifully and graciously and lovingly led Abraham back into faith. That's what God did. And in verse 6, what are we told? We're told that as a result of these things, that Abraham believed in the Lord, and his belief then accounted it to him as righteousness. But the fact of the matter is, promises do us no good unless we believe them and act on them, right? Promises do us no good unless we believe them and act on them. And Abram had already trusted in God's promises previous to this, and he proved it by leaving his home and going to the land of Canaan. It says a land, a foreign land, a land where he'd never been, a land that he did not know. God said, Abraham, come, and Abram went. But here, in verse 6, we've been speaking about the faith of Abram much through all of these chapters, but here in verse 6, it's the very first reference ever in the Bible to Abram's faith. And this particular verse which speaks of Abram's faith also reveals that his greatest need was to have righteousness accounted to him. It wasn't to have an heir. That wasn't his greatest need. It wasn't to even have God to protect him from all the potential dangers, although God promised to do all of those things. His greatest need, as God fulfilled it, as he led Abraham back into faith to the place where he believed, his greatest need was have God account righteousness to him. In fact, this is the greatest need of every single person, whoever has been and whoever will be and whoever is now. Why? Because the Bible tells us that all have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standards multiple times in multiple ways. And for this reason, the New Testament writers reference this verse, verse 6, three specific times in the New Testament to illustrate the fact that God's salvation, that God's salvation is given to us the salvation that God provides is, 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 is a salvation that is free, that is offered and is received by faith. First in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, 
It's the first time this verse is referenced, verse 6 of Genesis, then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, and then again in James chapter 2, verse 23. And it's more than just a reference in each time. It's a complete exp- uh, uh, explanation that gives us a doctrinal belief that we put our faith in Christ for salvation. And in these passages, three key words that are used over and over again are believe, counted, and righteousness. Believe, counted, and righteousness. And I looked up that word in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word translated to believed is the word aman. And it literally means to lean your whole weight upon. Now you can partially lean on something, right? But if you fully lean on something, it means that if it's gone, you're going where? Down. That's the idea. You're not holding back at all. There's no reservation in it. You're Fully, when you're believing, you're fully leaning on something. Amon. And, 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 and when we read here that Abraham believed God, we're, told that, we're being told that he leaned wholly, not only on the promises of God, but also on the God who made the promise. And as we tie these things, the Old Testament and the New Testament together, what we see is that we're not saved by making promises to God. Have you ever sinned and go, God, I promise I'll never do that again. I promise that if you save me from this, I will fill in the blank. In that previous life, I remember making all kinds of promises when I got in trouble or got caught. God, if you just get me out of this, I promise. See, we're not saved by making promises to God, but by believing the promises of God. And in the Gospel of John, which was written to tell the whole world about how to be saved, that word believe is used nearly 100 times in order to declare that the salvation of God is the gracious gift of God and that is received wholly by faith by relying upon, by clinging to, and by trusting in the promises of God and trusting on the God of the promise. And when a a person believes, we're told in these verses as we see here, when a person believes, or, 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 or when a person believes, then the righteousness of God is accounted, or it says, like in Romans, that it's imputed to that person. And that word impute simply means to put in one's account and in regard to the righteousness of God, we know that, that the righteousness of God was made available to us through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, our sins, it says, our unrighteousness, our sins, were put on Him. They were accounted to Him. They were imputed to Him. And he suffered, therefore, then the punishment that belonged to us. And in exchange for our sin, Jesus, the righteous one, deposited his righteousness into the spiritual account, our spiritual accounts, of those whosoever would believe in him. It can't get any better than that. So the answer to Abram's fear, guys, listen, summing it all up. The answer to Abram's fear was God's presence revealed by God saying to Abram, I am your shield and your great reward. And then the answer to Abram's concern about his heir was God's promise spoken to him saying, God said not, now I am, but he said, I will. 
I will. I will provide an heir who will come from your own body. And in these last verses, as we wrap this up, we'll see God then settle. He's going to settle all these things like God does for us. He'll settle all of these things deep within Abram's heart with a sign. And in verse 7, this is where we read it. It says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And the Lord, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And you're going, you might be going, wait a minute. Back in chapter six, or this verse, but back in verse six, I just it just told that Abram believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then the Lord said to him, "I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it." And then right away, Abram goes, "How shall I know that I will inherit it?" Listen, guys. Even though God had redirected Abram's eyes and assured him of the promise of an heir, here as we look at verse eight. We see that Abram is looking for a sign. A sign saying, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And this really, guys, as we follow the context here and we see where Abraham was, it's not a recounting, really. Abram's asking wasn't a sign of unbelief. It was simply a request for a token of assurance. And you know, we can believe and we can still go, God, can you please just give me an assurance? Can you confirm this for me? And God even knows that about us. And, 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 and it's a moving, it's a process, it's a direction that we're going. We're his kids, he knows. And so Abraham asked for this token of assurance, this sign. And we know that through a sacrificial covenant, through a sacrificial covenant with the shedding of blood, God secured this problem or this promise and, and assured Abram that what he had promised to him would come to pass. Now, this event that goes on, which we read, is, is described in verses 9 through 17. I'm not going to reread it. It's, it was known back in that day as a cutting covenant. And this was a common ritual that involved the death of animals. Obviously, we see that here. And, and, and the binding of people together in a promise through this act and in that, in that what I mean is, is that the, the, the person making the covenant would make the sacrifice of several animals, and then divide the bodies into two, and they'd place the halves opposite of each other on the ground. And then these two parties together would walk between the pieces of the sac sacrifices, these animals that had been laid out, and it was a declaration basically saying that if, if one of us fails to keep our word to one another, if one of us fails to honor this agreement, then what has happened to these animals, let it happen to one of us, that they deserve the same fate. Now, there's another example of this in the Bible. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 34. You can go and read it in, in, in verses eight through nine, or 18 through 19. But in this instance, <coughs> with Abram, we see that his experience was different. It wasn't normal. It wasn't how it normally went down. In that, Abram, we're told, killed the animals. Then he laid them out on the ground. And then as he waited for God, he spent the rest of the day shooing away the vultures the birds of prey that were wanted to eat the flesh of the animals. But then when the sun went down, it says that Abram fell in a deep sleep and God appeared and, and he spoke to him. And then what we know as we see through here is that only God passed through the sacrifices. In light of this, we see that God who made the promise to Abraham that it was him alone. God alone was the one who made the promises. And he's the one that, that, that 
secured the deal by walking through the covenant saying, it's not on you, Abram, it's on me. There were no conditions attached. The covenant was therefore an assurance, the sign, if you will, it was an assurance of grace. That Abraham would get something that he didn't deserve and for something that he didn't have to do. And it came from the generous heart of God. So in reality, the sign that God gave Abram was really a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. Likewise, it's the, it's the same in this new covenant that we've entered into, is it not? This is a perfect picture, this covenant that we see that God made with Abraham, this sign, this gift. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of what has happened for us through the new covenant that's been established in the blood, it says, of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to wrap it up with this, so if the worship team wants to come back up and, and get ready to, to lead us in the last song of worship, we know that, that this new covenant that Christ has called us into, it's been secured and sealed, it says, established in His blood, in His blood alone. It's a covenant that God has made with us, which is 100% conditional upon the work that Jesus did. Therefore, we have to conclude that it's nothing that we can do. As a result, we too can ask like Abram, how do we know that we will inherit God's promises? How do you know? Do you need to be assured of that? I do. Here's when I need to be assured of it. Is when I sin, when I stumble, when I fall, when I do the same thing over and over and over again. When fear and anxiety and worry and doubt and discouragement overtake me because I've taken my eyes off of the God of faith and I put them on myself and on my circumstances, my situation, then my heart condemns me and I go, God, do you still love me? I blew it. And God gives us a sign. He gives us an assurance And we can ask for that sign. And one of the things that God set there is pillars before us of this everlasting assurance of God's promises to forgive our sins, to be faithful, to accept us every time we turn back to Him is the fact that Jesus is alive. That's an assurance. That's why Jesus rose from the grave partially and showed Himself to be alive, it says, to many so that you and I would know that, the, that the, the, the penalty was paid, that the debt was paid, and that God received the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is our assurance, it says, of our own future resurrection. In addition to that, God has told us that He's given us an assurance, a sign, a gift, and that is His Holy Spirit placed inside of us. When I began this, I told you that, that when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I changed because I was changed. My life changed because I was changed. And the Bible tells us that when we believe, God puts His Holy Spirit inside of us. We receive a new nature, the nature of God, one that's not in bondage to sin. Even though we still have the flesh, we know that God's given us something greater. Paul writes, and he said, he said all things have become new. And the fact that God's deposited His Holy Spirit in us, the Bible says, is an assurance that, that we've been saved. It's assurance that God's coming back for us. In closing, I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this. It says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
in whom also having believed, you were sealed, secured with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption and the purchase, possession to the praise of his glory. Paul's saying is he says, God bought you. We freely gave our lives to him, but he purchased us. We're his possessions. And he doesn't lose it. He won't forget about it. We're valuable to him. And we know that one day he's coming back soon. And even though we may be overcome by the problems and discouragements and, and circumstances of this life, we see that we have a loving father that is gracious to lead us back into faith, reminding us that he's the great I am and that he will and that he has already done. Father, we thank you, God, for these assurances this morning. I pray, God, that you would help us to trust in you, that you would give us more faith, real faith, God, that where we, we rely upon you, cling to you, trust in you, where we have evidence of who you are, I pray, God, you would reveal yourself even more and more to us today as we again put our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.